Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and on this podcast, we are going to be covering the big stories that have appeared this week, this last week. Well, today's March 19th, 2021, so you can see which week it is, and we'll be talking about the big stories that have appeared this week on thisiscommonsense.org. You started off with the Dystopia de la Brazil. And that's your title, and it's really quite good, though I don't know exactly what it means. De la means of the, and since Brazil, you know, is, is actually it's Portuguese speaking, so I'm not even right there. But but there's somebody somewhere in Brazil who's speaking Spanish, and so I wanted to use that. But of course, we're not talking about the country Brazil. We're talking about Donna Brazil. Uh, who's an interesting character in some ways, manages to stay on TV, even though it seems like she's broken every journalistic rule. But of course, she's the former Democratic National Committee chair. So this is a very high up Democrat. And, and of course, she was getting paid something, I believe, as a as a uh, contributor to CNN years ago. And it came out that she basically was giving Hillary Clinton advance word of the questions, which seems to me to not be journalistically the right thing to do. But they never had much repercussions for that. Uh, You know, as I recall, and I could be wrong, so uh, I, I, I don't have a distinct memory, but it seemed to me that she wasn't out the door immediately at CNN, which she should have been. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but... My Fox picked her up, but, but yeah, my sense was that it was a little bit before CNN booted her, um, and uh, and then Fox picked her up, and I think that's uh, you know, but they wanted a high profile Dem who who they could feature and stuff, but yeah, it's really sad, and the reason I mention her is because she was on uh, Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, and uh, and her comment after, you know, they they started to discuss Joe Biden, President Biden. And the first comment was uh, Jonathan Swain from uh, uh, Axios, who basically said, you know, the the fact that he hasn't had a press conference, full-fledged press conference in all this time, you know, the modern record by a considerable margin now, and and growing day by day, uh, that uh, who should be surprised because he hid during the whole campaign. I mean, we just had a presidential campaign. There wasn't much of a campaign, interestingly enough. And and that hasn't been discussed a whole lot. I mean, we all know the reason why it wasn't much of a campaign. Um, but, you know, we know the reason for a lot of things. We talk about it all the time. It's It's interesting that there wasn't much of a campaign. <laughs> what news there was was actively, you know, hidden and and downplayed and deplatformed and censored and so on. But uh, but you know, such is life. Anyway, um, so he makes that point, which is a is a valid point. That of course Biden doesn't feel the need to do a press conference. He didn't feel the need to campaign, um, and in fact, kind of felt the need not to. Uh, or at least his advisors did, I think. But and then they were right. So then Carl Rove maybe misconstruing exactly what Chris Wallace meant says, "Well, look, he's just not up to it. He's 78 years old, and he's not going to look good in a press conference. And he's not. Um, 
And, you know, that's something, you know, that's something else. That's, uh, we, we had all the talk about the 25th Amendment, which I have to say, you know, I never gave a second thought before Trump uh, becomes president and it gets talked about all the time. And, um, but you could see it in play. Um, and, it, and it's hard to know, uh, you know, people who are not in early stages of dementia, uh, you know, certainly forget things from time to time or they slip up. And there's been a lot made of the fact that as a, as a kid, he stuttered. And so maybe some of his, you know, things are, or telltale signs of that, which of course, it doesn't seem to explain the totality, the, the totality of it at all. And and so it doesn't answer anything, even if that is part of it. But it almost seems like that's not really part of it. That that's kind of like just smoke. Uh, but anyway, it's it's uh, what I find interesting is that we can have. Uh, well, I find it interesting that the, the world superpower, and I hate that term, and I don't think it's an accurate term, because there's no superpower that we have behind beyond anybody else. And uh, and most of the, you know, the space and other things that maybe we had some super ability that others didn't have, we kind of handed away. Uh, which, which even from kind of a nationalistic standpoint, which, you know, I used to look at most of the people who were in Washington as nationalists. And uh, and now that's a dirty word because Trump happened to be a, a super nationalist. Um, but I think I think, you know, I think in some of the ways he was a super national uh, nationalist. And I don't mean that in some crazy way, just very strongly pro this country. And uh, and frankly, you know, I I'm into all kinds of international things. I consider myself a citizen of the world. I also consider myself a citizen of America. And I would not trade the citizenship as a United States citizen for citizen of the world, because I think I have real protection here. And, and trust me, I've been arrested by the feds and, and put in the hooskow before. So I, I have no illusions about how much protection there is here. But I think I have very real, noticeable, clear, obvious advantages and protections in the United States of America that I would not have as a citizen of the world because there's no there's nobody to protect those rights other than maybe the UN and I rest my case uh, but anyway I went on a little tangent there uh, but but it's interesting that we've had a president that our own media certainly mocked who was certainly mockable in all kinds of ways Mr. Trump uh, who was disliked by a majority of the country, just disliked less than they disliked Hillary Clinton. And, and just we had this kind of ripping apart for four years. And then we get a president who was, in essence, you know, I've, I've never seen, and we discussed this in a previous podcast, Tim, as you'll recall, um, never saw the Democrats circled the wagon so quickly. It seemed like in a weekend before Super Tuesday, I remember because I was in New Orleans for the pandemic hit kind of. And in literally a couple of days, every Democratic candidate 
was out and endorsing Biden, except the one candidate who should have gotten out, who had to have polling telling her, you're about to get clobbered in your home state, not, not first, not second, but third place in your home state. You're in deep trouble. And, uh, you know, she, she, Elizabeth Warren is the one who stays in. That's when I said, oh, my goodness, I've never seen I've never seen that many candidates get out <clears throat> that quickly and endorse the front runner. I've just never seen it. And, and you know, I didn't I didn't do some analysis or study or whatever, but I'm an old guy now. And uh, in all the time, I, I just don't ever remember it happening that fast and that completely. And then the caveat being Warren doesn't. The one person who, by getting out, would have really created a boost because Sanders and Warren were vying for that same constituency so much. Uh, you know, wow, something else. So anyway, this guy is anointed, but he's not. You know, the truth is he's he's a Trumpian character in a lot of ways. He has a tendency to say what sounds good at the moment. And Trump does this as kind of like a carnival barker salesman who everything's terrific. And yes, and we'll have that in the next week. And then, you know, six years later, they, they still don't have it. Is that a lie? Well, you know, it depends on your intent and maybe it just didn't quite happen. But and, and Biden's that same way. I remember the, the uh, video, which you can find on YouTube, uh, where he's at some event in New Hampshire and he's campaigning for president. This is like the 80s, I think, uh, or maybe it's the early 90s. Uh, and he gets in a fight with someone and is telling him how I'm smarter than you are and my IQ is higher and I graduated at the top of my class and I got this scholarship. And, and it turns out, and, and, and I'm thinking as I'm watching it, not knowing what exactly you know Biden's history is, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what a rude jerk who's in somebody else's house lecturing some person about who he doesn't know about how much smarter he is than them. I mean, that's just uh, uh, sickening. And then it turns out everything he said was a lie. It was He said three things and it turned out all three were false. He lied. And then, of course, later he apologized because he misspoke. So anyway, this is this is Biden. He becomes president, and it's pretty clear that we now have installed somebody. And I say we've installed oh, in all these different ways. Yes, he's now installed as president, and we're not really sure he's all there. And and I, I you know I don't want to say that cavalierly. This is a getting older. Uh, you know, it's serious stuff. Uh, so many of us have dealt with parents who have Alzheimer's, uh, with dementia that's not Alzheimer's, with, you know, I mean, this, it happens and it's, and it's heartbreaking. Um, but it's, you know, and, and look, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one in podcasts. I don't know, you know, exactly what's going on, but I know two things. I know that his behavior is not confidence building. And I also know that the National Press Corps can't be trusted to tell me the truth about it. So that's that's really problematic. 
But anyway, no need, I say all of that to get to this point, no need to, pre to, to worry your pretty little heads about it. Because as Donna Brazil tells us, it's all about when will the check arrive? As long as Biden sends the money, all is good. And weeks ago, I had a, a commentary where uh, I talked about twice in the Washington Post, once in a column and once just in a news article, uh, they were pretty much saying it, it, it'd be smart for Democrats to send this money to people. And of course, I, I point out in at the website, this is commonsense.org, Dystopia de la Brazil, uh, I, Monday, the 15th of March, that was the commentary, and I point out there in a footnote that, of course, let's not pretend that this is the Democrats buying votes, those darn Democrats, because, you know, Republicans, when they cast votes for some of these stimulus things, and they have done it, TARP, this, they did it with the stimulus last year, uh, and, you know, they're doing the same thing. They like one of the reasons Republicans a lot of times have talked about cutting spending, they don't do it. Democrats don't even talk about it. I don't know which one's better or worse. It seems like they're the same in, in what comes out. Uh, and if they get to be one party in control, they're the same squared, and then it's really bad. But, but Republicans or Democrats, every individual entrepreneurial politician who's in Congress knows, unless they're really idiots, and then even instinctively you'd think they'd know, their power is tied to how much money they control and they spend. That's what their power is tied to. And they know, people come to talk to them about stuff, and they know what that stuff is, and that stuff is about money. I once asked a, a state legislator in uh, Minnesota when we were lobbying there uh, beginning of this century uh, for initiative and referendum rights. And he was a supporter, he's one of the few Democrats. And I asked him, you know, how many people make the trip? He was from an hour, maybe even two hours outside of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, St. Paul, the capital. And uh, how many people have come to St. Paul to meet with you? that it wasn't about money, that it wasn't about a program where they benefited, you know, they're the school chief and it's about the school budget or their uh, company that needs this new thing in the state, some regulation or whatever. Um, and he told me, he had first he told me, I think, uh, uh, oh, it's pretty rare that anybody comes up here. And I said, well, that it wasn't about money. And then it was like, I don't think anybody has ever made that trip. And and so, you know, Donna Brazil's not dumb. You know, this isn't this isn't oh what a silly thing she said. But I think the American people need to know that the smart people in Washington, again and again and now again, believe we can be bought. And we can't be bought. Not all of us. Not a, there's enough of us who will not be bought. I look back so often because I'm big for democracy and, and initiative and referendum, let the voters decide. And of course, I don't want the voters democratically deciding anything that's not their business. If it's about somebody's personal individual right, I don't care if you got 99.9% .9 of the vote, it doesn't matter. You don't have any right to decide it. But anything government has the right to decide, 
I figure deciding it democratically is the way to go. And, um, and I find that the people are much better in their democratic decisions than their so-called representatives are. And I think about, you know, you think about Obamacare, which is a huge new spending spree for health care. And, and healthcare being a huge issue and concerns a lot of people and concerns them not just ideologically, but in their real lives. So you got people who aren't political who say, hey, I want this or I want that. And yet Obamacare passed with the majority of the public against it. When George Bush brought his, what was it, Medicare, Medicare D or whatever it is, but it was the it was the, you know, we're going to help pay for your prescriptions and so on. It was not popular. Now, this is the federal government saying we're going to give you a bunch of goodies. And you know there are a lot more people getting the goodies than are paying the heavier taxes income-wise. And that's where most people, I think, are looking at it. Probably not a full, complete picture of it because um, I always hate it when – Wealthy people say, well, the poor, poor don't pay any taxes. It just makes me so mad because, of course, they pay all kinds of taxes. It's just that most of them are better hidden than the income tax. I mean, there's all, every time they, they get a gallon of gas, they're paying taxes. Every time they turn around, they're paying taxes. They're also getting stuck with a lot of things that other people don't notice. If you don't have much money, that traffic ticket is going to really do you a lot of damage. Uh, there are many people in America... Yes, and, and, you know, here in Virginia, where I live, just 25 miles south of D.C., safely outside the Beltway, um, not safely enough, uh, but, but years ago, the legislature pretty overwhelmingly, bipartisanly passed these abusive driver fees, which, of course, when the public saw what they were, were just abusive fees, <clears throat> but it was it was legislation that allowed them, if they did some kicker on it and said, oh, this was aggressive driving or abusive driving, they could take that $140 ticket or $200 ticket or $98 ticket and make it $900 or $1,400 or $2,200. And... You can you can see how for some people that would really be a serious problem. And for some people, it would be a heck of an irritant. But for most people, it's like you're wiping them out. You're wiping them out. And people get so mad in the traffic here and people darting in and out of, you know, the traffic that I kind of thought, well, people are going to go, oh, we got to do something. No. And, and Virginia has no initiative, no referendum to speak of. A few cities have a tiny process that you can do about three things in. It's really sad. Uh, but a guy put a petition online, and this is the power of petitioning that doesn't isn't tied 100% to I'm going to change the law, although I like it when it changes the law a whole lot more. But anyway, it, it can be powerful even when it doesn't, because in this case, it did. I was, I believe, the 70, I was right as it was hitting 75,000 signatures. 
and I believe it got to 175,000 or some odd signatures on this online petition saying, take these fees off. It so caught fire that the sponsor of the bill apologized. They demanded a session to go back and rip it up and stomp on it and say they'll never do it again. Uh, and and I, now I forget what led me on that tremendous uh, tangent point. But it's an interesting story. That was me. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have gone there because it's kind of the opposite of the main theme of this particular common sense piece, which, by the way, the image online uh, is a quote from Juvenal, uh, the Roman uh, satirist: uh, "Give them bread and circuses, and they will never revolt." That's, of course, an overstatement. That's what satire is. But nevertheless, there is a principle, and it is unfortunate that uh, our leaders do have that principle in mind when they go about doing their business. And. The number one problem, like like even when we've in 2008, as as bad things were happening in the economy and so on, uh, there is there is an, an urgency to politics. And so things can get done sometimes in those situations. I think one of the things that hurts on reform is that life is so good. People have money. They have entertainment. That you know, it's 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 life is good, and so if you want to tune out bad news, you can. If you you know, and and I do think that there's you know our elected officials have benefited from their ability to send checks. It makes people like them more than they would like them otherwise. But I I also think we still have enough, and it's not just a remnant. It's a whole bunch of people in this country who work hard, who want to have a good life, who are awake, alert, smart, and know there ain't no free lunch. Shipping money into my bank account when I don't really need that money, I'm not out of work, I'm not... It, it's it's stupid. It's stupid, and it's you know what does it say when people do that? It either says they're really rich, and we know the government isn't really rich because they don't have any money except for ours. So it's like it's it says that the the hubris is thick, and uh, it's it really is scary. I I uh, we'll get to a. a, a commentary about uh, Taiwan and uh, and therefore China and so on uh, later. But I was talking to someone this week, it may have been you, Tim, I can't remember who it was, but uh, about, uh, you know, China and the United States, as someone was saying that, uh, you know, China has, you know, is leveraged in some different ways. You know, their, their uh, demography, the fact that they have uh, all these people who are older and they haven't had as many kids because of their stupid, evil, vicious one-child policy, which is now a stupid, evil, vicious two-child policy. But um, it, in in many ways, you know, China could could have all kinds of economic trouble ahead. They're not immune to overspending and overborrowing and, and those things either. And they have a very opaque society, so there's not the same checks and balances. But of course, what are we always bitching and moaning about on this podcast? 
and at thisiscommonsense.org with a commentary Monday through Friday. We're moaning and bemoaning the fact that we don't have much control. We aren't able to better hold our government to account. And our government's, uh, you know, we've, we've spent trillions for what? I mean, this COVID relief, this is serious stuff. And a half a million people have died and so on. And 30%, no one seems to have any pushback to the fact that this $1.9 trillion spending, only 30% was for COVID. And they use this to, you know, shore up a bunch of pension plans where politicians promise stuff and never put the money away, which should be a criminal offense, but for some reason they let them get away with it. If you're in private enterprise and you try that, you will go to jail. Uh, it's just it, it's just so wrong what continues to happen, and nobody's for that. I mean, think of think of the friends, relatives, acquaintances you know who are on the other side on political things. None of them are for doing that kind of stuff in a bill. Why do they do it? Well, because they need to buy votes and they want to send money to their. Well, why do you think? Big business or big labor always supports one side because they pay them. <laughs> you know that's how it works. So it's it's uh, and I think in in essence, the media has sort of bought into that. They've bought into it in in looking at the American voter as usually a moron who they don't particularly like, who they don't think they can fully inform because that moron might not vote you know, the way they, they think they should, and who looks at politicians as flawed people, but if they're on their side, that's the best that can happen. And since the people aren't embracing big government socialism with the kind of, you know, love and, and adoration that they should, it's obviously the people's fault. So that's that's our first script, and if you'll just give us the next six hours, we'll uh, we'll get through them all. <laughs> well, you know, when, as you were uh, talking about uh, how the uh, Democratic insiders got Biden in office, uh, I was reminded that on Wednesday you talked about the same thing, uh, but in this case, with something you just talked about a moment ago, which is about uh, an activist who is not on our side. She's uh, yes. Sarah Silverman, the uh, the actress and comedian. She's not. She's a progressive, and she's not. You know, she's not generally on our side at all. Uh, but but she complained about the Democratic Party this this last week, and interestingly, she didn't complain about the thing that I thought she would complain about, which she mentioned is 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 the uh, how they treated her favorite candidate. Twice she supported the the runs of uh, Bernie Sanders, and twice the Democratic Party insiders really messed him up. They worked hard and mightily yes. to make sure he didn't get in office. We raised at Common Sense, this is commonsense.org, one of the earliest people to raise the issue of superdelegates. You're going into this contest, and it's like the media hadn't told anybody any of the rules. And the Democrats had, had kind of gone to this worst ever, like all these superdelegates, to where... Now, Bernie Sanders did not win a majority of the delegates from the votes and so on, but he could have 
and still have lost because of all the superdelegates, the insiders. And that's what it all is, governors and other politicians and other party officials. And it's like, look, if you're such a big shot, put your name on the ballot. And in other words, you'd think the Democratic Party would be Democratic. But what they did to Sanders, uh, and I know quite a few Democrats, liberals, progressives, socialists, who are very well aware of what the Democratic Party uh, has done uh, to Sanders and and has has a view of the Democratic Party that is incredibly mirror similar to the view that Republicans have who do not call themselves Republicans, call themselves conservatives or call themselves constitutional conservatives, but tend to vote for the Republicans almost all the time when they can stomach it. In the same way that I think a lot of, uh, I mean, I know so many people who voted for Jill Stein uh, or voted for the libertarian candidate uh, who are on the left uh, in 2016, who could not vote for Donald Trump and could not vote for Hillary Clinton. So there, there is, you know, it's, it's it, and it, it has shrunk, uh, but there is, there are people on the left and and the nice thing about uh, Sarah Silverman coming out is is her coming out on the cancel culture and on you know being fascist <laughs> progressives fascist commies uh, you know just having this this kind of cultural revolution in China which was you know uh, a lot more about killing people and revolution and not that much about culture. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's, it is powerful to see that because it's important. Everything's so partisan. The more somebody like her steps up, you know, the, the better. She is basically calling out her side because she is very much a progressive. She doesn't even like the word democratic, apparently, because she thinks the party she was voting for all these years was the progressive party, as you mentioned. And that's kind of funny. But but she really is also calling them out. And it's not just the Democratic insiders. She's calling her people out for being Puritan scolds and kind of nasty <clears throat> Kind of people. the same thing that good old Jerry Seinfeld uh, uh I put a T in that, but uh, Seinfeld uh, had talked about years ago, which is that comedy is not going to be funny anymore. If you know, if, and and I think part of her getting it on free speech is the fact that she has said some things that are incredibly offensive, um, and I think you could find them funny and still find them incredibly offensive. Um, and well, they are funny. I mean, her, her rape jokes are the best rape jokes ever made. They're, right, they're but hilarious. It's, it's, but it's, rape isn't rape is offensive. We all know that. Yes. But yes. nevertheless, her rape jokes are better than everybody else's. So. <laughs> That's what you've told me. I'm yeah. going to take your word for it. But it, it, it is the sort of thing that reminds us, I guess it was Mencken who said that, you know, you're not going to defend freedom of speech and not be hanging out with people who say outrageous, terrible things, because that's where freedom of speech is, is defended. If someone's saying, you know, if it's the usual politicians mouthing words that have been poll tested that are going to be the most agreeable, you really have to fight to be able to say those words. It's the words that cause people to be angry that you said it and to argue you shouldn't say that. 
that sometimes people need to hear. And, and, you know, sometimes they don't need to hear it. It is true that in a free society, you're going to hear more stuff that you didn't really want to hear or need to hear. It is true in a free society, you're going to have to spend a couple more minutes in the aisle looking for what it is you want because there's eight different kinds of that because some people aren't you and they want it a little different way. In a free society, you're going to get it that way. Um, and so, you know, choose. And and I always think, look, I like to think that if, if uh, you know, if places that spoke English weren't free and places that spoke something else were, and I'm, I'm kind of a single language person at the moment, I'm working on it. I can say a few things in other languages. I have to pick one. Anyway, uh, but, but I would learn that language because I'd want to go be free. And so if you think that the, you know, governmental expertise in China is the, the best in the world, then learn the language, go there. I'm sure they'll let you in. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it, it's that sort of thing. You give us two directions we can go. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, you wrote The Incumbency Fraud. And that's about Democratic Party and uh, and insiders fiddling with elections. And is that the one you want to go to next? Yeah, let's let's go to that one because one because I think it's real important and and it's and it's also because of how and and you put it insiders fiddling with elections, which was an excellent way to put it, because this is put and I've been in I've I've, I've been in meetings with people on the left talking about election reform. I've been in meetings with people in, on the right talking about election reform, some talking about election integrity, some talking about election suppression and democracy and so on. And look, people believe different things. But the truth is what is passing in Congress, what has passed in the House and is headed and hopefully will be stopped in the Senate, which is H.R. 1 is a monstrosity. It is a terrible bill designed to help Democrats win elections and hurt Republicans' chances to win elections. And I can assure you that any bill in a state legislature, just look at the party label of who introduced it, and that's who's going to be helped by whether it passes or not. Now, it doesn't mean that everything the Democrats put in H.R. 1 is bad. And it doesn't mean that everything that's being pushed in state legislatures by Republicans is bad. Some of them are good changes. The difference is good for whom? And we know if we're not part of the discussion, if the public is just reading this like spectators, oh, the blue team did this, oh, the red team did that, we're screwed. Because the blue team stinks and the red team stinks, and both of them will cheat and destroy our elections if it helps them. So we have to be engaged. And I say that because uh, the response to this from a number of different people uh, was some of it was surprise that, uh, oh, why would you be for not so much early voting? And uh, what we're what we're talking about is, uh, Oh, which piece was the incumbency fraud. Uh, and basically it was, you know, people talking about we need 
as much early voting as possible. There's nothing that that does to create fraud. He was actually a Democratic uh, uh, attorney, Democratic Party attorney, saying that, and he's right. There's nothing per se that increases fraud if you have more early voting. Now, you could argue there's more time for fraud, but I flipped all of that because the truth is there are frauds and there are frauds. And I wanted people to see the incumbency fraud. See, it's going to be easier for voters if we vote whenever we feel like it. Give us a year. And, and then maybe drive us in a Rolls Royce to the polls. That'd be the best way for us. But the Rolls Royce could be expensive. Uh, it could distort the economy, you know, during that, those months as the Rolls Royce sales just zoomed. Uh, and frankly, all that time means that candidates have to campaign. And you might say, well, uh, you know, the campaigns are too long, short, and well, you can't, you know, you can't dictate when someone can speak. So the campaigns can be as long as people want them to be, but they don't really have to spend money until people are voting. If you have money, you're going to want to start your advertising. And of course, if you have tons of money, a lot of incumbents, a lot of major races, they're spending money a year out and, and longer in some cases. So look, they got plenty of money. They're doing, they're, they're playing the game all the way until election day. But for a lot of challengers, they are coming from behind. They don't have any money. They don't have a vote on how to, how to whose name to put in for the $1.9 trillion that's going to be spent in some cockamamie bill. The incumbent does. And that's why the incumbent's getting checks all the time and is doing just fine. And, and so, of course, they're going to deal if, if, if they have to spend money in the last two weeks when there's early voting, and I think early voting should not go beyond two weeks, then, then they can spend that money and they can spend money for the month before that. But a challenger who doesn't have money to spend the month before that or the month before that can target their resources when people are about to vote or are voting. And, and of course, we still have absentee vote. Uh, and, I, and I'm not really for all kinds of, you know, you have to show some this cause or that cause. I want integrity. I want I want some check to make sure that since you're getting the ease of, of absentee voting where you don't have to come in early, you can just mail it in. I want some real checks there. But I don't I don't want really that you have to have a, a valid excuse. I'm sick. I'm going to be out of town because now all of a sudden people are thinking they got to make something up. And uh, I think making stuff up between people and their government should should stop, especially the government making stuff up. But even the people having to make stuff up, forget that. No excuse. You want to vote absentee, fine. But there's going to be a real process and you have to request the ballot and, and so on. Um, but the, the early voting, if you like in Virginia, we voted for six weeks. That's a ton of money that you've got to be spending that whole time because people are going to vote right now today. And if you can do that into two weeks, uh, it's and, and in the old days when you really didn't have any early voting and it was election day, it was easier for challengers because they were catching incumbents at the end. And in that same scenario today, they catch the incumbent at the end and they lose the election because the incumbent has already banked enough votes 
when they had the advertising edge and when they had the name ID edge way off the charts and late in the campaign as the challenger gets enough name ID and his message out enough because it's a new message. It's not the same one for the last 20, 30 years. That's when the vote's going his way or her way. And at that point, they win, except if there's too much early vote and it didn't change fast enough. So it, it's a real issue. And it's the sort of thing that um, I, I think I'm going to do something here in the future. It's a it's an important campaign finance issue. And it occurred to me in thinking about it and discussing it uh, this week that there are three big issues for me that are critical for campaign finance reform. Now, in most ways of thinking, I don't like campaign finance reform because it's all been about writing all kinds of ridiculous rules and complicated formulas, and you have to say this on your ad and you have to do that. And, and it's about the government pushing around people who want to who wanna be involved in campaigns. And I know it probably feels different if you got a, you know, a whole wing of your building where lawyers and accountants are dealing with the FEC. But for those of us who don't have that and still have to deal with the FEC, our current campaign finance system is horrible for us. Wonderful if you're a billionaire, but horrible for us. And considering the whole reason to have it is to stop the billionaire something's something's rotten. Uh, but the three issues that would do more to fix the problem of money in politics without actually always decreasing the amount of money, but just creating a better playing field where money itself has less influence. Here's the three. No more than two weeks of early voting creates too much expense, helps the incumbent, no. The other two are this, term limits. Term limits is a tremendous factor on campaign finance because the most competitive races are the most competitive financial races. And these open seats that are happening because of term limits create a, a system in which someone can get into the game they have the resources to do that. It isn't an incumbent just beating them down with a huge war chest. And that's a huge advantage campaign finance wise. And the other issue is smaller districts. If we had districts that were the average congressional district is 730,000 people, something like that. I mean, you the price of admission. You can't hardly go door to door and hit all the houses. We, I think you need districts that are no more than 70,000, preferably 50,000 for Congress. And there's a lot of state legislatures that have those sorts of districts that are much bigger than that, closer to, to uh, congressional districts. That is a huge problem. And think about it. I, I point to, I, I was talking to somebody in Maine this week. They have, their house is 8,000 uh, constituents in a house district. New Hampshire next door, 3,000. I think uh, Vermont's five or 6,000 in a House district. It means that you can't come in with big money. What are you going to do? You're going to come in with big money and you're going to smear, you know, Sally 
who, you know, works down at the bank and who's running for state house? I don't think so. Everybody knows Sally. And if they don't like her, it's not going to help that you smear her. They'll probably start to like her more. But the fact is, if they like her, you're smearing her with some big ad campaign. I mean, when the districts are small and we actually have some relationship with our representative, and I realize that, you know, it's not like they're going to come over for, you know, for Sunday dinner every week. I'm just some relationship, not totally foreign. It makes a difference and it, it greatly diminishes the power of money without passing any complicated rule that a bunch of lawyers and accountants have to deal with. So there you have it. Doesn't early voting also uh, sort of lock in partisanship? That is party affiliation, because it would seem like that before the end of an election, it would be largely sort of on partisan basis that that somebody might vote, might sock their vote in early. And therefore, if you don't like the ramped up partisanship and just the strange divide in America now, maybe early voting wouldn't be the way to uh, solve that problem. I think there is an aspect of that. I don't. I hadn't seen any study or anything like that, but I think I think there's some common sense. And I, I had a lot of people this last election tell me they had already voted, and I thought, well, gee whiz, uh, you know, one was in Arkansas, and and I was involved in the campaign there, and we hadn't started advertising yet. Of course, we didn't have a lot of money um, because they had started voting. Um, but it's but you wonder, well. Do, have these people found out? I mean, a lot of times there's there. It takes time to get messages out there, and yeah, I do think it's a it's a big problem. And you know, it's not like, you know, it's not one of these things that you know if it's if it's ten days instead of fourteen, it makes all the difference in the world. Or two weeks, you know, three weeks. It's not as if the republic just dissolves into nothingness, but Everything you add to that for the convenience of the voter, you've got a question, is this why? You know, there's a lot of things for convenience. We could all be carried around all day, but our, our muscles would start to atrophy. And I think if we, you know, we don't vote together in this last election, um, not only are we getting messages from different places that are not agreeing on the facts, but some of us are voting six weeks before others. I mean, that, that's a whole different set of facts. Could be. Let me uh, jump then to a piece that I did for Thursday, which was the seventh anniversary of the beginning of the Sunflower Student Movement in Taiwan. And it was on March 18th, 2014, uh, that students, they had a demonstration there, and I don't know security or what, but all of a sudden they climbed a fence and they were in the legislative one. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's uh, Y-U-A-N. Uh, but so they basically kind of shut down the parliament, and it was all over a trade pact with China. And of course, at that point, the KMT, which was basically the Chiang Kai-shek folks who came over from China in 1949 when, when they lost the Civil War, uh, and KMT had run the, the country the whole time. And 40 years of it, of course, were martial law. 
uh, from basically 1947 to 1987 uh, uh, or 84. And uh, anyway, there's been this flowering of democracy, but uh, this event, which I was not aware of until I traveled to Taiwan a, a couple of years ago, uh, I now look at as a really, really important event in that Taiwan is so strategically located there. Uh, it is a big player economically in the world for an island of 24 million people. And China has wanted to grab it and control it, uh, which is not, of course, if you look at the history, is not a China has not always been in control of Taiwan. Uh, it's been split up for for uh, again and again. Um, but they want to control Taiwan. And there was kind of this view that maybe they had awakened to the idea that why are we trying to get militarily strong enough to take over Taiwan? We're economically strong enough. Why don't we just get in and buy up as much of Taiwan as we can and control as much of Taiwan as we can? And that's how not just students, but a number of, of people who were uh, very concerned about China uh, and this trade pact saw it, that this was a way for China to basically purchase Taiwan. And, uh, and so the next thing you know, uh, well, when they had negotiated it in secret and they had said they were gonna agree to certain hearings, but they basically passed the, the uh, trade pact, the initial vote for it, in 30 seconds after it hit the floor. And so the public reacted and the students reacted and held the chamber. And, uh, and I see it as not only critical because of what it did for Taiwan, but of course this was March and April. I think there was a big surprise that the public embraced the Sunflower Student Movement so much in Taiwan because Taiwan's a fairly socially conservative place. I'm not talking about politically, but more socially. They're not big protesters. They don't, they, you know, they, not that there isn't graffiti here or there, but it's just not, you know, they're, they're, you, you don't destroy stuff and then get lionized very much in Taiwan. And, uh, and, and I see that in most of, most of Asia, I think that's the way it is. Most of America, that's the way it is. But they, uh, so that, that sent a message that message, I think, was part of what helped spur on the umbrella movement in Hong Kong in 2014, which was in September to the end of the year. Lots of protests about democracy, about them having rights. And of course, then those protests have come back and come back. And now you see the clampdown in Hong Kong. But in Taiwan in 2016, you see the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, Chai and Wen, uh, basically get elected president, much more pro-independence. They don't usually use that term so much, but, you know, has been very anti-Beijing. Uh, and, and basically, one of the things that Hong Kong's protests have done uh, is to solidify the island of Taiwan and, and any idea that one... China two systems is anything but a delay in your in your execution 
is uh, is is seen to be a fraud. So, you know, they know that that they could be next. And and so I just look at this event and I think it helped wake up the whole world because, you know, the, what's been going on in uh, Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghurs, it's been going on for years. And it has taken a lot of time for people to wake up. Uh, and I, you know, I think I think the Obama Biden administration uh, years ago, completely asleep at the switch. And I have to say that so far, Biden has been very, very wary of China and very tough on China. And that's not accidental. That's because the American public has become more anti-China and and not, I mean, obviously the virus has a huge part to play in our feelings about China. And I should say in our feelings about China because it has no part to play in my feelings about China. I saw China and continue to see China as the number one threat to human decency and dignity and freedom and everything good in the world. And I don't say that believing that the United States is a shining city on the hill that's always done everything wonderful because we, we haven't. And we're a threat sometimes because we do bad stuff sometimes. We, not being you and me and anybody listening for the most part, but these idiots that claim to represent us so uh, and the people they empower to do our business. But but um, so I so the coronavirus didn't, you know, didn't change my attitude toward China one iota. In fact, if you had my attitude toward China before the pandemic, you're not at all surprised that China hide, hides all the evidence, destroys the evidence, lies about it. Is people are just flying out of China to the rest of the world and they know things are going on and they are not only not telling us, they're lying about it. Uh, and of course, it's not just, it, it's top down a lot and, and it's the top that's talking to the rest of the world or not talking to the rest of the world. But because it is an unfree society, people are scared to talk bottom up too. So it's, it's a real problem and our I want to say damn media, but I don't I don't usually say words like damn and other four letter words. The different media representations of what a wonderful job China has done on this, when, of course, they don't have any clue how many people have actually died in China. They it's very, very difficult to cover these things. And China lies all the time. And I don't mean everyone in China. I mean, the CCP. I mean, the China Nazis, not the good people of China. So anyway, it's it's uh, but but they pretended that somehow China has done such a wonderful job. And and granted, the U.S. has not done such a wonderful job, except that at least there's been some laboratories of democracy because it wasn't all federally mandated. But other free societies have Taiwan, for instance, uh, something I wrote uh I guess last August, I think it was uh, that I, that someone I was discussing this with, I sent them that that piece. It was it's called Friends and Enemies, and it was about Taiwan and China, but it wasn't talking so much about there are friends, there are enemies, but just how they behaved. 
and trying to lie to us and tricked us and and then blamed us and you know did everything that a that a rotten you know neighbor would do and taiwan you know on their own did all kinds of things alerted other people to it gave materials out you know and and why well it wasn't because some great leader in taiwan is it did a wonderful thing. It's because the whole society communicates. They're free. They're allowed to talk. They're allowed to say what they think. And and and, and not that. Look, uh, Taiwan's not a perfect society. The United States is not a perfect society. None of the European countries are perfect societies. They're, that's not in the cards. But the difference between having that basic sense that I can say something that we're all in this together, that, that the person who just got into the elevator is not an enemy, but probably a friend. I've never seen him before. But if they had you know, some problem, I would point it out as a, hey, uh, you know, your, your money's fallen out of your pocket. In other words, <laughs> it's, it's that connectiveness to society. And you know, if, if, if people believe that a top-down society where orders are sent from the top to, to do everything, where there is no freedom and no democracy, uh, you know, is, is going to create a better outcome, please go in peace to those societies <laughs> in all due haste. Uh, we didn't mention, I don't think, and of course I always forget certain things we say as we go through these pieces of each week, uh, but I don't think we mentioned the title. It's First Class Freedom Fighting. First Class Freedom Fighters. Uh, fighting, uh, fighting, March 18th. We're getting uh, beyond an hour now. We're approaching it anyway. And people can go read left-winged Wikipedia, but the, the, the bad news is that Wikipedia has become much more left-winged and has has kind of developed standards like Facebook and Twitter, which are no standards of any kind at all. But the good news is that there are beginning to be alternatives. And, and not, I should I say beginning, uh, what is it? Conservatopia is... Uh, Conservapedia. Conservapedia has been out there since 2006. And uh, and other places are out there as well. And Britannica has been out there for a long time. But I think that uh, I think we need alternatives. We need competition uh, on the internet and real competition uh, because you can, you know, we live in a world that is easier to be tricked, easier to be ignorant of the truth than I think any time in the last 500 years or something. I mean, it's just, and, and the ability of big government to hit the kill switch on our communication is outrageous. The ability of government to find out what our communication is, the, and, and you know, supposedly they're not doing that anymore. Supposedly. Um, you know, these are, we live in such consequential times. And I think about it as I get older that, uh, you know, I, I, I would like to leave with the world in better shape. 
and it's in right now. It's really, it's really a little scary. This has been This Week of Common Sense with Paul Jacob. On behalf of Paul, I thank you for tuning in, and remember, always go to the website, thisiscommonsense.org, and you can find everything Paul does there, or nearly everything. Everything you need to know.